Anthony, what are, what are you doing now? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> when, when you were like, yeah, I'm ready when you guys are, you immediately took your phone out. <laughs> <laughs> All my information's on here. We don't need the information to do the intro, because you know who we are, right? If I if I've got this correct, don't do this. <laughs> Welcome back to the Hauntsville Curb Cast. I'm Anthony. I'm Doza. I'm Anna, and this week we're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects in the world, woman in horror. Ooh. Personal bias, you are one. Yeah, I know, but like, okay, the women that we're going to be talking about today are like some of the most successful people ever, so it's very hard to compare yourself. Well, we're working our way up there. I mean, you are. I mean, not that we're up there and you're not, you're a woman and we're not, is, is the point I'm trying to make. <laughs> we're, we're fucking digging our own graves here. <laughs> but it's also so much not about comparison because we're going to be talking about women who influenced horror across the board, whether it's writers, directors, makeup artists, from novelization to screenwriting. There's just there's so many different ways that women have influenced horror. So the way that we're going to do this is by going down three decades. I think Doze has got the earliest. Well, I just I have like two points in history that I just wanted to make a note of before we got into sort of divvying it up into decades. Uh, I've been saying forever that like horror doesn't exist without women. Women have been writing and creating horror for literally thousands of years. And some of the earliest instances of interpretations of folklore stories are written by women. One of like the first werewolf stories ever written was uh, a French woman, Marie de France, who has a werewolf story called Bisclavare, if that is... Well done. Yeah, all right, cool. And that's <laughs> one of the, the first ever written and recorded fictional werewolf stories. Not that werewolves are real and anything, but... That's a subject for another day. <laughs> God, we, we, we can't do this bit that we're like, oh, we're, we're monsters <laughs> every episode. So from beyond that, uh, when gothic horror really got its foothold in in horror fiction in the 18th and 19th centuries that was when women were thriving in the horror community because we have with with Mary Shelley who i think is to to me and to a lot of people the the godmother of gothic horror with her frankenstein in 1818 the way that she she writes about the human condition and her anachronistic uh anarchistic view of uh, of the world is prevalent in her writing and that is something that follows through out history and today where people still take inspiration from mary shelley and she is one of the fucking baddest bitches in horror and she like really got this ball rolling and so i i feel like i would be remiss if i didn't give her you know the the proper due credit she kept her husband's severed heart in a box you can't get much more badass than that for real dude and it's really sad because, like, she didn't get to see pretty much everything that came from what she wrote. Like, how many adaptations of Frankenstein or how many different versions are there? Like, how much has it influenced the way that other people write? It's influenced nearly every horror film. It's influenced fashion. It's a huge deal. If that was the only thing that she ever wrote in her whole life, like, what a legacy. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And she she wrote beyond that. She wrote any any moment that she had which it was incredible 
So I figured that that was a a good jumping off point to getting into this where, you know, influential women in horror. I Especially the time period in which Mary Shelley was writing, that whole era has really formed that idea of the contested castle. And I know I mentioned this probably once an episode, but the book, The Contested Castle by Kate Ferguson Ellis, really goes into that idea of, you know, at that time, a woman's place was in the home. There wasn't much opportunity. They were being institutionalized for any sort of rebellious activity. But it turns the home into a place of horror. And you'll notice that in a lot of the novels of that time, especially those written by women, the home becomes its own horrific entity. And it's that idea of being trapped and isolated and trapped in that stereotype of this being the only place for you and that became an escape for female writers of the time yeah historically like a a lot of horror comes from uh, as a sort of a a coping mechanism a a way to as an outlet to to deal with certain issues of the time which i i'll get into as i talked about some of my women throughout these decades as times change these sort of issues uh sociological or uh are personal or otherwise change the way that women are portrayed and the way that women present themselves in these stories uh, changes and evolves as well, which I think is, to me, the most interesting part of this. That's what I'm most excited for today. So so what decade are we starting off with? You said you had uh, somebody from the 30s. We're doing, that's like some of the earliest film that we can we can get with influential women. Yeah. I mean, if I could take us a step back from the 30s, I have the 20s. So I wanted to start with The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, because it's widely regarded as one of the first horror films. It's a silent German expressionist horror film. Love this. (laughs) (laughs) Realistically, the uh, lead female character in that, played by, I'm going to butcher last names this entire episode. It's all right, we'll all correct you. I'll do it in post. By the actress Lil Dagover. She plays the lead character in Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So if we were going to consider that the first horror film, uh, not counting things like the old Curiosity Shop. I think it's Haunted Curiosity Shop. There's also Haunted Castle, which is the first vampire movie and first... Right. There's a bunch of shit like that. So keeping us in the 20s, her character would realistically be the Scream Queen without a scream because the film is silent and she's our first real horror protagonist that we see in that kind of scenario. Well, do they throw up the cue card that says like, ah? Oh, um, I guess. Okay. <laughs> it's there. It's just um, not audible. Now, I did want to start there, but... No, I do still want to start there. The next <laughs> film that I was going to mention is The Year After. My bad. Uh, she was also in a film called Destiny, The Year After, which I think is... Ooh, the more... film is called Destiny, The Year After? Or no. the year following? Okay. The year following the, doc- the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, okay. Lil Dagover was the lead actress in a film called Destiny. Cool. Which, even though it's considered a drama, the subject matter is a lot darker than most dramas for its time. And uh, her character is given a much stronger role than women in her time as well, because her character's fiance is taken by death, leaving her as the lead protagonist throughout the entire film. And she's given three chances to save him, which I think is awesome for a character in you know one of the earliest what could be a horror film. The other cool thing about Destiny is it was co-written by a woman. It was written by Fritz Lang and Thea von Harbo. So to have a female red screenplay in 1921 is pretty sick. 
Wasn't it? Hold wait, up. Who, who did you say worked with Fritz Lang? Oh, you're going to kill me for this one because I didn't recognize it off the top of my head. Yeah, I was going to say. Thea Von Harbo, go for it. Metropolis. Oh, holy shit. Easily one of the greatest films of all time. Yeah, like literally one of my favorite films in the whole world. So that was in 1927 that they both co-wrote Metropolis and it was directed by Fritz Lang, but apparently she had a lot of involvement. Yeah, she is. She's a threat across the board. Writer, director, actress. She was just crushing it in the early 20s. Uh, Until you just said that. I'm actually really annoyed at myself. Because, I mean, I know that Metropolis is more sci-fi, but, like, sci-fi and horror are, like, sisters. Yeah, well, Frankenstein was a fucking... Frankenstein was a sci-fi story, also. I mean, every piece of horror has an element of sci-fi to me. Oh, yeah. And the other way around. I mean, sci-fi is kind of birthed out of the paranoia that you get from things, and that's exactly the same place that horror comes from. It's from paranoia, it's from fear. So both those subjects go hand in hand. But yeah, I can't believe that I forgot about her. It's hard because it, it, obviously she gets overshadowed by Fritz Lang. When I was doing my degree, then part of it was cinematography for a little bit. And I got to pick a f- film to focus on. So I wrote like a whole thesis just about Metropolis. And then that's when I figured out that she existed. And I was just on like a tangent for like weeks of being <laughs> obsessed with the fact that like a woman co-wrote especially in that time usually when women wrote stuff in that time especially in like hollywood and stuff they would actually get discredited for it yeah that's why they used pen names and pseudonyms and stuff they used to have to pretend that they were men to get even acknowledged yeah i have a whole point of that when we get to the 50s but like yeah people getting discredited for stuff because they were women was like such a huge thing all the more reason why having February as Women in Horror Month is super important. That's about all I have for the 20s if you want to <laughs> kick us into the 30s. Yeah, if, if we want to start the episode. I mean, it's it's 30s slash 40s, but um, one of my favorite authors is Daphne du Maurier, um, who wrote uh, The Birds, Rebecca, Don't Look Now, um, and Jamaica Inn, three of which are obviously Hitchcock films. Yeah, I, I didn't know this at all. <laughs> Yeah, so Hitchcock kind of wouldn't have a career if it wasn't for her. Behind every strong man is a fucking powerful woman. <laughs> it's really funny, actually, that comes into like the way things were perceived when they were written by women at that point. Because the Times Literary Supplement in 1938, just after Rebecca was published, it was already a bestseller. But this uh, magazine, as well as all the newspapers at the time, gave it really bad reviews um, and said that women shouldn't be writing. And the Times Literary Supplement actually said it was a lowbrow story with a middlebrow finish by a romantic dope of a woman. And that was their first review of one of the most incredible novels of all time. I've never read it, but everything that I've read, especially in like Contested Castle, Rebecca is regarded as very highly one of the best domestic horrors. Completely. And the funny thing about that is that 25 years later, the same magazine then again reviewed Rebecca. And 25 years later said it was immensely popular and provides great literary interest and one of the best novels of all time. Same place that it was published before saying that it was a romantic dope of a woman, then reviewed it and were like, oh, actually, no, it's great. And this is still a fucking argument that people are having where they think that women don't have a place in these things. I Yeah, so Stephanie Demare did these incredible stories that completely shaped 
Alfred Hitchcock's career, and a lot of people haven't heard of her still. And that's because at the beginning it was it was reviewed so badly because only men were writing in these magazines and had a tendency to be really critical if women tried to do anything. It's just crazy because Fritz Lang, now Alfred Hitchcock, were two for two in our decades of super famous directors that would not be famous or even really exist without their female counterparts. So that's my 30 slash 40s heroine. It's definitely cool that Rebecca spans that time period because the book was 38. Hitchcock snatched it up almost immediately. Film came out in 40. Was it directly 1940? I think so. That was the first. Hitchcock's Rebecca is the first black and white movie I ever saw. And that's like literally the movie that got me hooked on like classic cinema. So my brother sat me down when I was about nine or 10, and he was just like, oh, we're going to watch a movie. And this was the year after he'd shown me The Exorcist for the first time. I was like obsessed with that. And so I asked if we could watch another scary movie. Um, And my brother being six years older than me was like discovering more about movies and cinema and stuff. So he was like, oh, we're going to watch a black and white film. And I was like, why are we going to watch an old film? Now look at us. And um, so he showed me Rebecca and I was so obsessed. As soon as it like cut to the credits at the end, I was like, can we watch another one? And we had to go to bed. But like the next day. Uh, the first thing I said to my mom when I woke up in the morning was that I wanted to go to Blockbuster and rent any black and white film I could. And then that's when I found out that like the monsters and the Adams family and things like that existed. So I started binge watching those. And then, yeah, from then onwards, like my ultimate comfort has been black and white movies. So I actually owe that to Demare. Well, look, a cute, I love that you have a little personal history with that. Has anyone else got anyone from the 30s or 40s? Nobody that we didn't cover in our Screen Queens and um, Final Girl episode. Like, I talked about Fei Ray and King Kong and stuff. So, I, I don't want to step on our own toes. Because I, I was so girl power that episode. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely our other woman in horror tribute episode. So, if we're going into the 50s now, Melissa and Patrick is the first person that came to mind when we thought of doing this episode. So she she was actually one of the first female animators to work for Walt Disney, which I didn't know. That's so dope. I didn't know that at all. I didn't know Disney employed women, like, at all. (laughs) Now I think they're, like, obliged to. I think uh, they do it because they have to. (laughs) Yo, what the fuck? Yeah, she's the first female animator to work for Disney. And on quite a few of her films that she worked on, apparently she wasn't credited. First woman to work in the special effects makeup art. Uh, artist department for Universal Studios. That's where I started to know her from. From the the effects makeup? She designed and created uh, the Creature from the Black Lagoon costume. She created a a number of those classic Universal monsters. That's obviously the one that she's most noted for, but that's also when she lost her job with Universal. Why? So... After Creature from Black Lagoon came out, she was sent around because everyone was so excited that a female had created this. So she got a lot of really good publicity. But the lead makeup artist for Universal, Bud Westmore, was so annoyed that she was the only one getting credit for everything. And so he demanded that she be fired. 
And she was. And she was discredited from the movie for a number of years. Wow. Fuck that. That's the biggest case of a guy trying to overpower a woman when it comes to her career that I have found. But when you have cases like that, like, if she hadn't been rediscovered and then recredited for it, we wouldn't know that she'd done it. And there's probably a million and one cases out there still where a woman did it and they were like, we're not going to credit you. Yeah, so we'll, we'll never know. Oh, my God. And it it's shocking that, like, I mean, the 50s was still a time where, you know, women were thought to have their place in the kitchen and looking after the kids. And they weren't supposed to be working in most people's eyes. So even the fact that there were people like her who were like, no, screw that. I'm going to go and do a job and I'm going to go and do it well. And I'm going to do it better than any guy can is just incredible like whether they were credited or not leading the way for that to be a possibility is just incredible especially in that sort of field as well so yeah that's that's my uh my most poignant woman for the 50s i'm gonna i'm gonna miss out a lot of women on here i mean if we talked about everyone we'd be here for hours yeah like that that's great that we do have that problem though because i feel like not a lot of people even know or acknowledge that there are so many people. Like, even we were talking about Jason Blum. Is that his name? Yeah. Because he he was talking about how, like, oh, yeah, I, I would hire female directors, but there aren't enough female horror directors. But, like, I have a list that I'm looking at in front of me that I have constructed through, like, I did maybe, like, ten minutes of research. And, like, I, I could staff an entire movie with the women that I found. He's not looking in the right places. No. I and think he's rescinded this statement since 2018. He, he, has, he but has, but he's still ignorant as hell for... Making a statement like that in 2018. I don't know. I, I think that it, it's coming from a place of, of ignorance and bigotry that he was just making a blind statement and just because, like, oh... Like, I won't make a statement just because I haven't heard of something doesn't mean I will discredit it entirely. And he has since, like, reached out to to female writers and directors, but he's been turned down because of the way that he's been. Good, fucking stick to your guns, because, like, I, you I know... I mean, the, there's no reason for that ignorance. That's the point. Like, I don't care whether he's, like, tried to backtrack because he was like, oh, God, I'm going to lose fans over this. And that's probably why he's trying to make the point of reaching out. but. If you're going to make a statement like that in the first place, that means that that was your fault. And it means that you had a long time in this business to look up other directors. Yeah, it's your fucking job. If, like, me, regular human Matt Mendoza, can find these women that I I would love to work with, but don't have the means to, like, I'm sure somebody that is, you know, in charge of uh, a multimedia company that makes movies professionally could do something about that. And he through ignorance and by choice has not but also to make that statement in 2018 and be on the cusp of releasing halloween which we all know deborah hill's involvement with halloween how are you going to make that statement and just totally wipe the slate of somebody like deborah hill i think he just doesn't know i think he honestly has that means he wasn't involved in the own making of the film that he was producing which is bullshit I mean, to be fair, he's a big producer 
So the involvement that he has in the projects that that come out under Blumhouse, I think, is very minimal. So I can definitely see coming from that angle of him being oh, yeah. just so out of the loop and ignorant of what is actually out there that it's just a matter of like people like Halloween. Let's do Halloween. People like the thing. Let's do the thing. But I find the opposite like is true of a lot of these women that are producers that are greatly involved and because they do care about each of these things and like oh we'll talk about that when we get to them you want to have back to the 60s <laughs> <laughs> yeah we can go to the 60s here you guys go up to the 60s i feel like uh even even today still there's difficulty to represent queer people in media let alone queer women in film but have you guys seen the uh, the haunting from 1963? I haven't, and I keep hearing that I need to. So yeah, it's it's the best one. It's, it's so, so good. Yeah, <laughs> but the original is just absolutely beautiful. For real. <laughs> but one of the characters, Theo, is played by the actress Claire Bloom, who plays a lesbian psychic. And it's not not a plot point, but it's important to her character and her characterization throughout the film, where she's very she she flirts with the the leading female, which in sixty three is like absurd, and she almost like has a physical alter, uh, altercation with one of the men because he tries to rub her shoulders, and she's like, "Don't touch me." It, so the haunting is another adaptation of Shirley Jackson's Haunting in Hill House, yep. <laughs> which this is one of the points that they got right in Thea's character in the 20 whatever we just watched. I blank it from my memory because it was yeah, with crapshoot. Theo. Yeah. Or whatever. Theodora. But that is also very much her character in the Haunting of Hill House. Yes. So it was cool that they carried that over. And the fact that I haven't seen the Haunting in 63 and they carried over that she has that personality trait and it's it's very strong in the book so the fact that it's like very well represented in 63 is awesome to hear and it's almost like a a weird sort of instance to include this in in the film where i don't know if it's supposed to be a point of contention or uh, a sort of praise of her as a character um because the 60s being it's still touchy at that point but she has a moment where she's uh talking to eleanor the leading female and she asks her if she's married and theo doesn't know how to answer her because i think she's trying to say like i i live with a woman she's like oh i i live with someone and she just goes no i'm not married almost kind of like physically demonstrates how difficult it is to be a, a gay person in in the 60s and that is it's such a, a beautiful moment that is lasts only a second in the film, but like st- stuck with me. It's it's great. They All have the some acting really... in that film is incredible. It's so so good. They have some really great moments together in the book, and it's just very. It's not written as a point of contention or praise, but written as a normal thing. Yes, which is awesome on Shirley Jackson's part. I'll go on about Shirley Jackson forever, but you guys know that. You don't want to go on about her now? I thought that was no. going to be like your lead into that. Yeah, I, I thought you were like ramping up and I was like, I'm sitting back, I'm opening my water. No, because... Which is why I haven't mentioned her. She is on my list, but it's all under the grounds of the Contested Castle. I've got Shirley Jackson. You fucking Susan love Hill. the Contested it's, Castle. <laughs> they're the best films 
that I've seen have been under that premise. The best books that I've read have been under that premise where home, home life and character tension is what drives the whole story. And it just cliche or not, I think women are better writers of character than men. There's I've seen more well-developed three-dimensional characters written by women than I have written by men. And then there's the whole like we can get into some of the awful ways that men have written women over the years but that's just fucking laughable yeah like we, we don't have to because we we fucking know we've, yeah. we've seen these movies we've seen those characters i um, think a lot of that the reason for women especially um in the times that we're talking about being better at writing character development and writing these sorts of stories is probably because they were so suppressed in what they were allowed to say and do in public so they were forced to kind of write it down and build it into this world that they wanted to see happen and the people that they wanted to see represented. And they probably had to write all that down in the form of like fiction to try and get it out there without men criticizing them for being those people. No, it's, it's absolutely, it's absolutely true. I, 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 uh, I find that evident in, in a lot of these, these instances of women writing women, but I, I do, I agree with you 100%. So while we're still in the 60s, I picked out Ingrid Pitt as my 60s choice. Uh, Ingrid Pitt was uh, an actress in the Hammer films, and she was the first female lead in the Hammer films series uh, with Countess Dracula, which is 1971, but still 60s, she's 60s. But the thing is, like, as as much as all of the females in Hammer, like Hammer was obviously very much about sexualizing women, which, you know, isn't fantastic, but throughout horror history, we have done that. They have been sort of known as only good for representing sexuality to drive audiences, which sadly is still the case today and is an absolutely huge problem. Anyway, with Ingrid Pitt, the best thing about her not is not just because of her acting in those films, but she actually went on to become a writer for uh, the magazine Shivers and writing about horror and like her take on things. What is Shivers as a magazine? Uh, so Shivers was around the same sort of time as like Famous Monster Filmland um, and creepy comics and stuff like that it was along those sort of lines and she was also a merchandiser for uh monster mania the magazine as well and she went on writing a lot of stuff behind the scenes that wasn't discovered and well she died in 2010 but in 2012 while some of her stuff was being gone through they found that she'd written a book called dracula who which is a follow-up to countess dracula that she'd written herself Oh, man. That's cool. And she'd also included with the novel that she'd written for it, she'd also pinned a full-out screenplay and a screen adaptation for it to be made into a film. And they're both complete? They're both complete, and they've both been published by uh, Abelard Publishing in 2012. And the screen adaptation is prepared and out there and published, but yet to be taken on. That is so cool. If anyone from Hammer is listening, you know what the right thing to do is. But um, I'm, I'm amazed that Hammer haven't already tried. If they don't, then it's been published publicly. Fuck it, we'll take it on. I, f- I fucking wish. I think this year the goal is we make a film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, A, any, anything. <laughs> so I guess we're on to 70s. This is where all of my favorite movies ever were made, I think. 
Creature from the Black Lagoon notwithstanding. But I wanted to draw attention to uh, another marginalized group, which is women of color in horror, which for a long time, even through the 70s and through today, you get them as strict stereotypes throughout history. Why black women specifically in horror are either uh, voodoo priestesses or they're some sort of mystic or there's some sort of like exotic sexy woman from like the jungle and the glamazonian yeah exactly and so my pick for the 70s is uh rosalind cash who anna you might know from the omega man uh-huh yes i do so omega man being one of my favorite movies of all time and I think the best interpretation of the I Am Legend story, which we'll get to. (laughs) But having a a black female lead in a horror movie with a cast of, I think, six people total is huge. She plays a very, very important role that isn't a proper stereotype. And she shares what I think is the first cinematic interracial kiss in film. I couldn't find anything before this, which I think that that's huge and important. And she had a career, a a lengthy film career before this and beyond this. So it wasn't, I think it happened at just the right time for it to just be like, this is progressive and it's it's done very well and very classy. And I was like, this is perfect. This is exactly what I think they needed. And Rosalind Cash did a fantastic job. And I think she is an excellent actor. Real quick. um, First interracial kiss uh, was two years prior oh. to the 1970 it was on star trek no on film i'm like in a film I, i'm saying oh it, television it, i just love that story that william shatner was just like we're gonna run all the film out so this has to air yep <laughs> it's it's fucking baller but i did make a point to say in film so yeah that that's my pick i i thought it was huge and important i think that she's fantastic yeah completely and it's weird because i've seen that film so many times but it's also like night of the living dead like you watch these things now and it doesn't run through your mind what a big deal that must have been because it's such like a a normal thing i guess to us but then when you think about like how big of a deal that must have been at that time when people like cared about those sort of things i I know there are people out there still who are narrow-minded and do see those sorts of things but it's it's almost nice now looking back at it like how big of a deal that must have been at that time and how amazing and brave it was of those filmmakers and those actors to be involved with something that huge. I mean, that's why just last year, end of last year, Horror Noir came out, which is a documentary chronicling all of those milestones for actors of color in cinema, especially in horror, because horror has, like you said, Doza, the biggest tendency to just make it a trope. Yeah, Some tropes I'm... are fun, but not when <laughs> <laughs> they're uh, alienating and ostracizing groups of people as a whole. Okay, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent for a second, so bear with me. Is it because we're in the 80s? No, I'm leading from the 70s to oh. the 80s, but I have a little Fred I would like to call the woman behind John Carpenter. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> obviously, my favorite directors in the whole world, but I went down a little bit of a hole of thinking of, of poignant women in horror. And obviously, I went to Deborah Hill because Deborah Hill is a queen 
oh, I know exactly where you're going with this. I'm psyched. Then after that, I was like, oh, I thought that they were married, but they weren't. They just dated. And then I was like, oh, who was he married to? And then my mind was just like, okay, (laughs) he has done nothing without women. I love the man. He will always be my favorite. But he's done nothing without women. And it's incredible. Okay, so I'm going to start with Deborah Hill, who... um, Dated Carpenter from 1976 to 1979. She obviously was a writer, producer, script supervisor, editor, director. She is just a queen among women. Not just for horror, but for like cinema in general. She is just one of the most incredible people. So she was a writer and producer for Halloween. Well, co-writer. As we discussed in our Halloween episode, which is the first episode we ever recorded. I noted in that one that she... The idea for Halloween came from the fact that she used to be a babysitter and she'd already written a short film, The Babysitter Murders. And that's when she got the idea for Halloween and her and John Carpenter wrote that together. She was also a writer and a producer for The Fog, Escape from New York, Escape from L.A. Um, And she also produced The Dead Zone and Clue. Clue being like one of the best films in the world and Tim Curry's best role, in my opinion. Hell yeah. She was actually born and raised in Haddonfield, <laughs> which is also why we have Haddonfield in Halloween. Um, it's based on where she grew up. The people that have worked with her have always said that apparently she makes a big deal while she's on set about the fact that women aren't represented properly, not just in horror, but just in Hollywood in general. And that is apparently what she says motivates her to keep trying and keep going. She was always trying to push people who worked for her into bigger roles um especially if they were female but she also she got james cameron where he was because he worked with her as an intern and she then recommended her on to loads of people and james cameron is very well known and respected now so she's kind of created him as well but yeah she was diagnosed with colon cancer in 2004 and she had to have her leg amputated because of that she continued to work and even in 2005 the year after this happened she went back to carpenter to work on the 2005 remake of Bob. so she did that with her amputated leg and like she brought the leg with her they let you keep it if you ask yeah me and my leg are back baby let's do this thing so uh despite despite struggling be a woman in cinema and being recognized despite having cancer despite having an amputated leg she kept going and she kept working and she was just an absolute incredible woman in horror now i'm gonna lead on to carpenter's first wife which was adrian barbo carpenter's wife from 1979 to 1984 obviously she was an actress in the fog escape from new york uh she was also in creep show and the swamp thing but we just watched the first episode of uh, the Creepshow series on Shudder, and she was also in that, which was a really cool little thing to see as well. Yeah, she's got a little Creepshow legacy. She was also in the Swamp Thing remake, the TV show. Uh, I don't know if that got instated. I think they, I'm pretty sure they canceled it. I didn't even know that was a thing, TV show. Yeah, it was not good. Because <laughs> it, was, it was on like DC's streaming service, so like nobody saw it. They were like, well, let's get rid of it. She was also in uh, the 2007 Halloween, the one that we're not supposed to talk about. But she is carrying that Halloween legacy, like the the John Carpenter legacy through the Halloween franchise, even though no involvement. Oh, completely. And I mean, it it seems like they ended on good terms anyway. It seems like all of his partnerships ended on good terms, which is great. That leads me to my last woman of John Carpenter. (laughs) My last one of John Carpenter's mistresses. (laughs) 
So it's his current wife, uh, Sandy King Carpenter. Yeah. Um, she was the script supervisor for They Live, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, and she was also the script supervisor and producer for They well, They Live, Body Bags, uh, Village of the Damned, Christine, Vampires, and Mouth of Madness. Oh, shit. Every single one of his films <laughs> is backed by an incredible woman. And that's that's not putting down him at all, because he's fantastic by himself anyway. We know this. But he's a very powerful woman that he has in his life, and he's made some very good choices of wives, clearly. John Carpenter picks the best wives. <laughs> <laughs> does. But the fact that they keep on good terms afterwards speaks a lot about him as well. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe how many women he's got through, but like, and, and like really talented ones. <laughs> It's incredible that these women have had such huge roles in creating some of the most incredible films, across sci-fi and horror. I just, I just think they're all just absolutely incredible. So that's that's my my segment of the women behind John Carpenter. Hey guys, Doza here from the editing room. Turns out we talked a little bit longer than we expected to for this episode. So for the first time in Hauntsville history, we're going to be doing a two-parter. I already have that edited out, so keep an eye out for it later this week. All three of us were sick while we were recording this episode, and I think I got all of the sniffles and coughs, but uh, just bear with us if they're still in there. Uh, Also, that unfortunately means there's not going to be a fear of the week in this one uh, or recommendations, but I'm going to be doing a little segment of my own that I'm going to be calling uh, Is My House Haunted? where I'm going to be taking viewer mail and letting them know if their house is haunted. I have one here from a friend of mine that says, Hey dude, I distinctly remember locking all of my windows before getting in the shower, but when I got out last night, every window in my house was wide open. Is my house haunted? Yes, it is. And uh, that's all for this one. (laughs) Happy hauntings. I'll see you in hell. Hey, 